From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. No, no, and no. That's the answer three statewide ballot measures got from voters. We'll check in with our politics team. Then, in Colorado, wonders, a pronunciation pickle. Do you mind pronouncing the name of this street? Uh, I'm going to say wine coop. You're going with wine, not win. Yeah, wine. Win coop? You're going with win. I am. Later, the Denver Broncos without Von Miller, his former teammate Ryan Harris, on where this leaves the team, and bringing art to countries in conflict. A lot of times, you know, the art is just a catalyst for discussion. It's a catalyst for people to get together and talk about things that are going on or had gone on. Boulder's Art Nuts celebrate 25 years and reflect on what's been lost in the pandemic. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Mortar. Colorado had an election Tuesday, and spoiler alert, everything on the statewide ballot lost. We're going to go over the finer points now with a couple members of CPR's public affairs team, editor Megan Verlee. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. And reporter Benta Berkland. Hey, Benta. Hi, Ryan. I know it was a late night. Thanks for being with us this morning. Colorado voters indeed defeated all three statewide ballot questions. Benta, you were at the Prop 119 watch party, I think. Uh, their measure would have raised recreational, recreational cannabis taxes to pay for after-school programs, lost uh, by close to nine points. And that's right. It, it actually only got the majority of the vote in five counties. But there was a lot of money behind it. Backers spent about $2.5 million, and opponents didn't really raise anything. Okay. It also had support from Governor Jared Polis and a who's who of former governors from both parties. So with the money and the you know political support, why do you think it failed, Benta? Backers saw this tax increase as a targeted fix to help kids who need it most, especially given how the pandemic has increased disparities in learning. But Curtis Hubbard, the spokesman for the Yes campaign, thought that message just got lost. You know, education policy in Colorado is hard, number one. And so you have to be very clear in making your case to people. And I think one of the difficulties we faced was there was a lot of misinformation on the other side. Misinformation. What's he talking about there? He feels that a lot of groups that opposed it mischaracterized how the money would be spent and used. And there were some false claims that the proposal would set up some sort of voucher program. Uh, The Democratic Party did formally oppose the proposal, and so did some education groups. They just felt that public tax dollars should not fund private after-school enrichment programs. And they also didn't like that this would have diverted some money from the public school system, and they wanted a bigger education funding fix. I don't imagine that the cannabis industry was all too hot on 119 either. They weren't. They felt this tax increase would have been regressive and a financial burden, especially on low-income consumers. And they felt it was for this 
special interests that wouldn't benefit the vast majority of Coloradans. Okay, once again, Prop 119 going down in Tuesday's election. Megan, you were following the other two statewide measures, which were also defeated. Indeed, Proposition 120 and Amendment 78. Uh, These did actually quite different things, but they were put on the ballot by the same group, uh, Colorado Rising Action. It's a conservative group. It pushes for smaller government and lower taxes. They've been pretty successful with ballot measures in the past, so it was interesting that that both of the things they pushed for this year did not go anywhere. Prop 120, that was a tax cut to the property tax rate. Yeah, and I even heard from opponents that they were like, yeah, of course this is going to pass. Everybody's property value are going up. People are, are hurting with their, their taxes. Um, it failed by 12 percent, at least last night. I haven't looked this morning. You sound surprised. What do you think went on there? Um, so things got really complicated with this, as anybody who read their blue book knows. Yeah. Uh, the legislature passed a law that basically took the legs out from under this measure. It reduced the financial impact from about a billion dollars uh, spread across private homeowners and commercial property to just multifamily and uh, lodging uh, properties. And so, you know, my guess is, A, people might have read their blue book and thought, this really doesn't do much. It doesn't do anything for me. I'm not voting for it. Or they might have read their blue book and thought, this is really confusing, uh, the safest thing is not to vote for it. Mm. And it was fascinating that the state legislature, anticipating that this might pass, defanged it essentially before it could, uh, but it failed. Let's talk about Amendment 78, uh, which would have restricted how the state spent certain like infusions of cash. Exactly. And this is another one that I think um, quite possibly what we're seeing is is voters erring on the side of caution because it is such a complicated idea. Basically, it would have said that certain types of money that, that come in from out of the state that go to state agencies and offices to, to sort of do the final spending on would have to go under the umbrella of the legislature. Um, the, the two examples I keep using are all the money Colorado is getting from the Purdue Pharma Settlement, which mm-hmm. will go through the AG's office, uh, and uh, the CARES Act uh, coronavirus funding last year. And the, the backers of this bill, uh, or bill, this, this uh, initiative, thought that that probably really hurt them, that people could, especially with the emergency funding, it's a very concrete example where you want the state to be able to move quickly. And opponents said, look, this is just going to make things a lot harder. Okay. So it's not all going to be now controlled uh, by the legislature, these purse strings. There remains some control in the governor's office or the attorney general's office because this failed. Exactly. And I actually talked to the Democratic head of the, the budget committee who said, look, we need better oversight of these things. Sometimes we are not getting good reports about how this money is spent. Like there does need to be reform here. He was opposed because he thought that actually it might have had some unintended consequences that go beyond these custodial funds. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are taking stock of Tuesday's election in the state. Uh, Benta Berkland from our politics team. How was voter turnout? I'm curious. It's an off-year election, so turnout was off. Off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Certainly from 2020, and that's to be expected. Figures we've seen from the Secretary of State show only about a third of eligible voters participated. And there was also a bit of a urban-rural divide when it came to turnout. So in some of the more urban areas, Denver, turnout was under 20 percent. In rural parts of Colorado, turnout was double that generally. And I want to give a little shout out here to Mineral County, which had close to 70 percent voter turnout. Mineral County. Megan, before we go, a topic that tees up the 
2022 hmm. congressional election. Because that's what we all want to think about the morning after yeah. the 2021 election. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't bring this up as a question about the horse race or anything like that. But Colorado does have eight districts, congressional districts, in this next election. And those are a lock. The map is set. Right, Megan? Yes, that's probably the other big political news in the state this week. Uh, the state's growing population means we added an eighth seat to the House. Uh, and this week, the state Supreme Court said that the map created by the Independent Redistricting Commission met the criteria. They did their job. Uh, and what they approved will stand. Uh, so what that means is we have four districts that are likely to be won by Democrats, three that lean heavily Republican, one district, the new eighth, that is a toss-up between the two parties. And now that these lines are set, I think we're going to see a lot of candidates from both parties jumping into that eighth race. We actually heard yesterday about a, 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 the first Republican getting in on it. So okay. that is about to heat up awfully fast. A race already taking shape for next year's U.S. House contests. Thanks so much for being with us, Megan Benta. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. From CPR's public affairs team editor, Megan Verlee, and reporter Benta Berkland. A few other election highlights from around the state. In Denver, voters have thrown their support behind four of the five measures that allow the city to borrow for big projects. Issues 2A through 2D have a comfortable margin They pay to improve places like the Denver Botanic Gardens, the Museum of Nature and Science, and the Denver Zoo, building two new libraries, and providing more shelter for people experiencing homelessness. They also cover transit projects like roads, bike lanes, and sidewalks, as well as parks and rec upgrades. It looks like Denver bond issue 2E, though, is failing. It would have paid for a new arena at the National Western Center complex and transformed the historic 1909 stadium building there into a public market. Again, that appears to be failing. In Colorado Springs, a measure to create a wildfire prevention program is leading comfortably in Mesa County. Voters backed a bond to overhaul Grand Junction High School, whose facilities date back to the Eisenhower administration. And from Ignacio to Littleton, you can find results for a slew of mayoral and school board races at CPR.org. When we come back, a pronunciation predicament in Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Independent local journalism struggles to survive in many parts of the country, and a new film takes a look at one small town in Iowa. Storm Lake follows the challenges of a small local paper trying to stay afloat. I'm CPR arts reporter Monica Castillo, inviting you to join me and the filmmakers for a conversation about their documentary as part of the Denver Film Festival. What we lose when we lose local news. Sunday at 2 at the Denver Film Festival. Details at CPR.org. Think of it as a potato-potato debate exclusive to Colorado. Vicki Bamford of Denver wants to know how to pronounce a street name, and she's so unsure of how it's pronounced, she spelled it out. W-Y-N-K-O-O-P, <laughs> street. This is a street that wends its way through Denver's lower downtown and Rhino neighborhoods. It's also a fairly famous brewery in the area. I've heard it pronounced both Wine Coop and Wind Coop. I volunteered down on that street and wanted to know how to tell folks how to get there and be correct in my pronunciation. 
Vicky reached out through Colorado Wonders, where you come to us with something that stumps you about our state, and we find the answer. This time, it made sense to head down to the street in question. Hello, sir. Hey there. Do you mind pronouncing the name of this street? I'm just going to point to the sign there. Uh, I'm going to say Wine Coop. You're going with wine, not win. Yeah, yeah, wine. Yeah. Why? Because <laughs> uh, there's a Y, I guess. W-Y-N-K. I get that. Yeah. Okay. That's Zach Van Neville. He was walking by Denver Union Station and was kind enough to stop. Another passerby, Jorge Gonzalez, also took a stab. Win Coop? You're going with win. I am. Why? Uh... I actually had a friend um, whose last name was uh, was W-Y-N-N-E, and he pronounced it Win, And so I guess that's why, yeah. One vote for win, one vote for wine. Well, this is as clear as mud. Then I heard it piercing through the sounds of traffic and downtown construction, the recording that plays at the crosswalk. Wine Coop. Walk sign is on to cross Wine Coop Street. Well, that seems pretty official, right? But I can't ask follow-up questions of a recording, so I opted for a human being, a historian who's helped us out before on Colorado Wonders, and that's Sam Bach of History Colorado. It was windy as heck outside, so we grabbed a table inside Union Station. Well, Sam, which is it? Wincoop or Winecoop? It depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about the street, it's named after the man, Edward Wanshire Winecoop. But if you're talking about the brewery, it's Wincoop, because the founders of the brewery didn't want to talk about wine. They serve beer. Got that? Vicky, the street is wine. The brewery is win. But we weren't just interested in pronunciation. We wanted to know about the man behind the street name. Turns out it's a fascinating story of a mineral, a massacre, and of a mind changed. Ned Winecoop, uh, as he was known to his friends, was widely known as one of the founders of Denver. He and William Larimer were appointed by the governor of the Kansas Territory to come to Arapahoe County and found a town here and establish some government in a place that had zero Euro-American folks living in it until gold was discovered in Ralston Creek nearby. We should just note that before Colorado existed as a state and before that as a territory, we were essentially part of larger Kansas. That's correct. Yeah, and it was part of land that had been promised by treaty to the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. And so when Winecoop and his band of founders arrived here, not only did they find the town of Auraria and another town called St. Charles that had not been established but had been claimed, they also found a camp of Arapaho folks who had wintered here for generations. The Arapaho folks would call themselves the original land keepers of this area. Auraria... I connect that, of course, to the Auraria campus now. St. Charles, that's the first I'm hearing of that. Yeah, essentially it was nothing. It was a group of miners who had come to this side of Cherry Creek and who had established a claim on this area and left behind a man named William McGaw to sort of hold down the fort. But as the story goes, McGaw, through some persuasion and maybe a little whiskey, was persuaded to join the Winecoop Larimer Band and establish the town site of Denver. And in fact, that's why Denver got the name Denver. It was the name of the governor of the Kansas Territory. And they were hoping that he would side with the Denver founders rather than the St. Charles founders in assigning a city charter. We could be sitting in St. Charles today were it not for Ned Winecoop and his posse. That's exactly right. 
Do we know much about what kind of a guy Weinkoop was? Yeah, Weinkoop was a really interesting man. He was definitely a man of his times. Uh, he was born in Pennsylvania, and he came west to join his brother-in-law and sister, uh, who moved to Kansas in the 1850s. And of course, Kansas in the 1850s is in the middle of a major conflict over whether it would be a free territory or a slave territory. And in fact, running battles in the streets in Kansas were pretty commonplace to the point where Ned Weinkoop walked around with a revolver and a bowie knife and was really skilled at using both of them. And so that's one of the reasons that Governor Denver appointed Weinkoop to be the Arapahoe County Sheriff. It was He was a great shot. And so Weinkoop was really involved in a lot of frontier brawls and bar fights and duels um, in his role as Arapahoe County Sheriff. So for two years, he attempted to sort of hold the line and establish some sort of law and order in a town where, you know, there really was just a lawless atmosphere. You know, I don't think the term applied at the time, but this notion of whether it should be free or not is kind of a litmus test. Do we know where he stood on that? Weinkoop really refused to take a position on the issue of slavery. Uh, he had friends who were Democrats and pro-slavery. He had friends who were Quakers and anti-slavery. So when he came out to Denver, uh, to establish Denver, he still hadn't really taken a position on slavery. But as the Civil War approached and as he saw sort of more and more of how much the sectional crisis was taking from Kansas, uh, you know, he really made a moral choice to side against slavery. He was anti-slavery by the time the Civil War started. And in fact, he joined the Union Army, uh, the Colorado Volunteers that were raised at the outset of the Civil War. Now, the amateur historian in me is naturally beginning to think of the Sand Creek Massacre in about this timeline. Does Weinkoop play some sort of role in that? Yeah, it's really impossible to talk about Ned Weinkoop without talking about the Sand Creek Massacre. And in fact, he was really one of the the army officers who was responsible for shedding light on the massacre and countering, you know, Colonel Shivington, who committed the massacre, you know, who was in charge of the massacre. Um, he was countering Shivington's narrative of this was a glorious battle uh, for years. And in fact, up until his death, he was fighting with Shivington in the press about this. So Weinkoop joined the Colorado Volunteers in 1861 when the war broke out. And he was given a lieutenant's rank and fought in the Battle of Glorieta Pass in New Mexico against Confederate forces. He distinguished himself there and was promoted to be major of the company and put in command of Fort Lyon. Over the course of the early part of the war, he led campaigns against the Utes, tasked really with defending American settlers and their outlying outposts near the fort. And he held some really anti-Indian attitudes at the time that were, that were very common and in fact being manufactured and pushed um, from the very folks that he helped found the town of Denver. Attitudes like what? Oh, that these people are savages, that they are uncivilized, that they don't deserve to live on this land because they don't farm it. Um, It's an extremely racist and paternalistic way of understanding the Native people who lived here. And it was very callous, you know. I think it's one of these moments in American history where people allow themselves to be wrapped up in fear and prejudice because of that fear. You know, as you unfurl this story for us, Sam, I think, oh, well, good for him. He was trying to bring awareness to a massacre, and he thought of it as such, as opposed to a victorious battle. And yet, he had his own problematic relationship with indigenous people. Absolutely. And I think the thing to understand about 
Weinkoop, it's really important is that his experience in attempting to create a peace agreement between his forces and the Cheyenne people really changed his mind about Native peoples and the Cheyenne in particular. All right, that is an exploration of Ned Weinkoop, the man. A street is named after him in Denver, and then another guy comes along with an equally unusual last name, Hickenlooper. So when we opened the brew pub, which was the first brew pub in the, in the Rocky Mountains in 1988, uh, we decided to name the bar after the street on which it was located. And the man after whom that street is named was Edward Wanshire Weinkoop. But we didn't make wine. We made beer. So we wrote a formal petition to the mayor of Denver, Mayor Pena, and tried to get the name of the street changed to Beer Coop. And he, ref- he refused. Therefore, we call it the Wincoop Brewing Company on Winecoop Street. The voice of now Senator John Hickenlooper speaking with Nine News about the brewery he opened ages ago in Denver's Lodo neighborhood and how it kind of adds to the confusion, adds to the tension between Winecoop, as the man pronounced his name, and Wincoop, the name of the trailblazing brewery. You know, I suppose to some extent I think of this as in opposition to the history, but Hickenlooper was making his own history too, I suppose, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's natural to want to name your brewery for the place, and especially, you know, here in Colorado where the place is so central to the identity of the beer and the brewer, Um, and so invoking the name of the street that you're on makes sense. But, you know, I don't know about changing the name to Beer Coop. I think that might be just one step too far, and I think the mayor agreed with me at the time. Thanks for talking with us. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you very much. Public historian Sam Bach of History Colorado answering a Colorado Wonders question about pronunciation. The street in Denver is Winecoop. The brewery is Wincoop. By the way, History Colorado is working with three tribes on a Sand Creek Massacre exhibit that's slated to open about a year from now. So what are you curious about? Let us know and we may investigate. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. And we'll be back in just a bit with what the Broncos look like without Von Miller and vice versa. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. High in Colorado's mountains, listen for the call of the whistlepig. Better known as the yellow-bellied marmot, its cousin to the groundhog evolved to live at high altitudes. In the fall, the rodent's body is plump from a summer feasting on plants, occasional bird eggs, and insects to double its weight to more than 10 pounds. This extra weight gets the marmot through long months of hibernation underground, where its body temperature drops to near freezing. Some scientists say the marmot actually benefits from climate change. As snowmelt begins earlier in the season and summers continue to lengthen, the whistlepig is able to spend less time in hibernation and more time feasting all the better to build up extra reserves to snooze through the winter and then bask in the sun as they spend their days whistling through another summer on the slopes. 
a Colorado postcard from CPR. The number of LGBTQ older adults in assisted living and skilled nursing facilities is expected to double by 2030 to 3 million. But not all facilities are equipped to accommodate them, leaving them vulnerable to housing discrimination and instability. One transgender woman was rejected from dozens of facilities in Colorado. CPR's Claire Cleveland reports as part of our series on housing instability. On a warm summer day, 68-year-old Lisa Oakley sits in her motor-powered wheelchair and drinks a Diet Pepsi out of an insulated cup. When she moved into the skilled nursing facility in Grand Junction, hours from her hometown of Craig, it was an adjustment. Uh, It's a great big change of life. I was used to being able to do what I want to do. It's the first time in her life that she isn't independent. Last year, Oakley went to the emergency room for elevated blood sugar. She's diabetic and smokes. While she usually would get her levels under control and go home, this time her doctors recommended she go into long-term care. She was assigned a social worker at the hospital to help her find a place to live. Corey Martin Crawford didn't anticipate she would spend months trying. And I would occasionally have patients who would be regionally denied because they had behavioral concerns or like were selling drugs on site or things. But I still could always find an accepting facility within a certain amount of time. She says Oakley was denied from facilities because of COVID-19 restrictions or because they didn't take Medicaid or the facility was strictly non-smoking. So Martin Crawford started screening facilities. Are you accepting referrals? Great. Yes, you are. Do you accept Medicaid for long-term care? Awesome, you do. And do you allow smoking? And they would say, yes. I said, great, I'm going to send you a referral. So they met all of those criteria. And the one remaining was that they needed to be trans-affirmative. Oakley is a transgender woman. Some of the facilities Martin Crawford reached out to asked invasive questions about the surgeries Oakley has had. Many facilities gave no formal reason for rejecting Oakley, or they just stopped responding. Martin Crawford says she knew the reason some of these facilities were rejecting Oakley was because of her trans identity. I think that was hard for me to approach that conversation because while Lisa very openly identifies as trans, She also very proudly identifies as trans and doesn't necessarily see it as something that makes her vulnerable. But this community can be vulnerable. LGBTQ plus older adults are at higher risk for mental health issues and disabilities. It's compounded by higher rates of poverty, which leads to housing instability, especially in Colorado, where housing prices have soared and long-term care is expensive. LGBTQ plus seniors are also less likely to have family support. Oakley has faced discrimination, but she says in many ways it's gotten easier to be trans until she needed a place to live. I was surprised at the lack of training that nursing home facilities have had. Uh, The one that I wanted to go to was up in Craig, and they said I'd have to room with a guy. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to room with a guy. Oakley's health continued to decline. The facility with open rooms in Craig didn't admit her and did not respond to multiple requests from CPR News for comment. 
Ultimately, Oakley's care team decided it would be best for her to stay in Grand Junction, where she plans to live the rest of her days. She's grateful she found a home after months of housing limbo, but she worries about other LGBTQ plus people. Hopefully other transgender people will be able to get the help that they need on getting long-term care. There are social workers like Martin Crawford who don't give up, and organizations like SAGE that are working to train facilities to be LGBTQ plus affirmative and safe. Tim Johnston is an advisor there. He says organizational changes like updating non-discrimination or visitation policies and ensuring bathrooms are trans-inclusive is part of the curriculum. At the end of that process is when you would put your rainbow flag up. Because <laughs> if you do it earlier, you're essentially setting a trap for somebody to feel safe when in fact it is not a safe environment. Still, there's more work to do to make sure every older LGBTQ plus person can access a safe place to call home and get the care they need. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. It doesn't seem that long ago that Von Miller was the toast of Denver, leading the Broncos to Super Bowl glory. And the Panthers have a third and ten. Here comes pressure, and they've gotten to him. The ball is out in the end zone, and it's recovered by Malik Jackson for the touchdown. It was Vaughn Miller with the strip sack, and Jackson with the recovery. Vaughn Miller just so fast that they don't have the answer. But five years is a long time in the National Football League. One reason why, on Monday evening, Miller said farewell to Broncos Nation. You know, it's a, it's a tough day, you know, for me. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't see it. You know, coming is just, uh, you know, one of those things that you just kind of walk into. It's, it's for the best interest for, you know, me and, you know, the team as well. Miller was traded to the L.A. Rams for a pair of picks in the 2022 draft. So is this a path to solving their longstanding quarterback issues or a surefire way to keep the Lombardi Trophy outside of Colorado for yet another season? Ryan Harris played alongside Miller on that Super Bowl winning team. Harris now a broadcaster for Altitude Sports Radio. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Great to join you again. Miller plays on defense. You were an offensive lineman in 2016, but I imagine his presence transcended both sides of the ball. Tell us about your relationship with him and your own reaction to the trade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Vaughn Miller, what makes him great is he competes in practice. And, you know, him along with DeMarcus Ware really made us all better on offense uh, because of the way they practiced against us. I mean, their first day off, was, I think, in training camp was the first time we scored a touchdown in practice. So <laughs> they were just they, – they wreak havoc, but it's no surprise the success – that Von Miller has had because of his work ethic. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was shocked. Um, you know, I was a little surprised that Von Miller was traded, but just a nod to how important Von Miller is. Not only did he help win a Super Bowl and get himself a Super Bowl MVP, but he also is now setting up the Broncos for the future. I mean, second and third round picks statistically proved to be more valuable than even first round picks. So uh, in, a, in, in one final gesture of helping the Broncos, Von Miller, uh, is the difference again. Huh. You think that went into his thinking? Absolutely. George Payton knows, uh, he, he knows that you're going to be able to get value in that second and third round. 
anybody watching the Broncos with a football mind uh, can see that there are multiple positions you need help. You, you probably need a couple linebackers. An, an extra corner never helps, a pass rusher as well. But this can also add to what they call assets that allow you to get a trade. You know, now you can move two second round picks and a third round pick if you wanted to go up in the draft or if you wanted to go after a quarterback currently on a roster on another team. Um, these kinds of things really sweeten the deal and, and can make the deal happen. You're speaking of the Broncos general manager there. Let me put a finer point on what you're saying. I mean, on Sunday, the Broncos broke a four-game losing streak with a win over Washington. They now have a 4-4 record, uh, actually the same as the two-time defending conference champion and Super Bowl favorite Kansas City Chiefs. But does trading Von Miller mean that Denver, uh, for lack of a better term, is at least punting on this season, you know? I don't think so. I mean, what I see is that they're saying, hey, we're going to get value for great players and and we're going to use the talent on our roster now to see who can actually play. I mean, there's no surprise also that, you know, the Broncos got five sacks in the last game uh, because with Vaughn Miller out. When Mm -hmm. Vaughn Miller, a guy like Vaughn Miller or for the Nuggets, Nicole Jokic is on, you know, when these kind of guys are on your team, players will never tell you this, but, you know, they expect the the production to come from them. So a guy like Malik Reed will say, Hey man, I just missed that sack, but if Vaughn's in, he's going to get it. Well, Vaughn's gone. So now you have to get there and then you're going to get Bradley Chubb back in the, in a couple of days, the other defensive end first round pick. So for George Payton, the GM of the Broncos, you get to see what talent you have on the roster. And now everybody has an increased responsibility and, and role in winning football games. And that's the way it has to be moving forward for the future of the Broncos. So this could be a a bit of a catalyzing force. I'll just say that Miller missed all of the 2020 season with an ankle injury, but returned this year and was for the most part playing well, although he sat out this last week after re-injuring his leg. The last time you were on the show, Ryan Harris, uh, at the start of training camp, there were rumors that the Broncos were interested in Green Bay um, quarterback Aaron Rodgers, uh, maybe looking to make a deal. Uh, Denver, of course, went with Teddy Bridgewater, who's been okay, but likely isn't considered a long-term solution at the position. Uh, The picks Denver acquired from Los Angeles could be used to help their positioning in the 2022 draft. If there were a standout college quarterback available, uh, or there's renewed talk that a trade for Rodgers or perhaps Seattle quarterback Russell Wilson could be back on the table at season's end. What do, what do you think of all that? Well, th- those are true stories, according to sources I know. Um, the, the the asset accumulation is to help make a play for Russell Wilson, who or Aaron Rodgers. Now, Russell Wilson. It was tough for the Seahawks to deal him this year because he had what they call a a dead cap hit, meaning the team would still have to pay $50 million and be on the hook on the salary cap. That drops about $26 million next season. So it makes it more able to move, especially considering that Carson Wentz was moved from Philadelphia to Indianapolis in a similar contract situation. But make no mistake, the Broncos are going to swing big in the offseason. And whether that's Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson, um, those are two great names to go after. There's some talent, too, in, in the college football ranks. I will say this is the worst year I've seen of talent in, at quarterback in the draft. You got Sam Howell from North Carolina, who's OK. Uh, he's a little short for the NFL. And then you got Keaton Slovis from USC, who I believe is probably the better, uh, the better prospect. So 
not a lot of options in the draft if you're George Payton, GM for the Broncos, mm. which makes it all the more likely they're going to go after Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers. But Rodgers from Green Bay is older. Are they looking to repeat the Peyton Manning magic? Well, I mean, Peyton Manning showed it can be done, yeah. right? That's yeah. the thing. Players always want to see the proof in the pudding, and Peyton Manning did that with his stellar play his years here with the Broncos. So not only that, but players know there's a there's a system there even without the with the ownership situation here for the Broncos there's a way for veteran quarterbacks to come in and they trust that the GM will get talent on the roster to help them win so um, I believe also Aaron Rodgers his fiance is is uh, spends time in Boulder so a little bit more more of a um, enticing offer there for for Aaron Rodgers anywhere is enticing to leave Green Bay I'd imagine but <laughs> Denver is certainly an op- option on that list in just a few seconds you know Miller was 21 when he came to the Broncos more than a decade ago a mainstay in the community hosting kids football camps starting a foundation to provide children in Denver with free eye exams and glasses what strikes you about the arc of his evolution here in Colorado well, he was just so in tune with his team and the city. And a lot of people saw that in the video clips of him driving away from Dove Valley. You know, he was emotional leaving Denver. Denver matters to Vaughn Miller. It matters to a lot of us who played uh, for the Broncos, not just the Super Bowl 50 team. But Denver is a stop that most athletes actually stay. I'd say 40% of Broncos players stay in Denver when they're done playing because of the city, because of the fans, and because of the connections you make. And Vaughn Miller's impact is not done. He will continue to be a fixture here in Denver and beyond for, for now and beyond. And every Denver fan is really happy for Vaughn Miller. He gets a chance to win another Super Bowl. And everybody anticipates he'll come back for a one-day contract, run out of the tunnel one last time, and mm. everybody will cheer his name like the Chiefs did for Jamal Charles and like some of the other Broncos greats have done here as well. Ryan Harris, former Denver Bronco and current host on Altitude Sports Radio. He joined us to discuss the Monday trade of linebacker Von Miller to the Los Angeles Rams. Let's hearken back, if only for a moment, to that 2016 Super Bowl and its dreamy halftime show. The Art Knots, based in Boulder, have traveled the world since 1996 to bring their art to countries in conflict. The group, created by CU Boulder professors, is an art collective with a mission to address global strife. It's holding its 25th anniversary exhibition called Uncanny Times, Looking Back, Looking Forward. Ceramicist Martha Russo has been in the Art Knots from the start. She showed us around the cluster of buildings on the outskirts of Boulder, where the exhibition takes place. One piece is a line of masks suspended from a wall. They're partly meant to embody conflicts over mask wearing. This is a piece by Ben Jackal, and it's titled Hanging Up Our Masks? Question mark. And I I feel like it's kind of this, what what will happen when we're done? And how will we memorialize our masks in a way. And the fact that he's made them out of porcelain, which is this traditional material that's about fine china and, you know, has links to aristocracy, it's sort of this funny play with material. 
And they're just sort of nonchalantly hanging on, you know, this little birch hanging rack with pegs that are sticking out. And of course, who would ever want to wear a mask that was made of porcelain that could, you know, be super uncomfortable and not work? Rusa says the artist also wanted a palpable way to remember the suffering and losses of COVID-19. She points out another work by Art Not founder Professor George Rivera. It has drawn attention on social media. This simple lawn sign that says stop hate that's in the shape of a red stop sign. And he said, you know, I'm really for love, and I wish I could say let's just learn how to love each other. But we're at a point we've got to stop hate, and if we don't stop it now, we're going to rip each other apart. And he didn't say stop hate this or that or the other thing because he didn't want to make people start saying, oh, you know, stop hate, stop hating black people, stop hating Asian people. He's like, let's just stop hate in general, and maybe we can move forward. Well, Martha Russo sat down with my colleague Andrea Dukakis to delve further into this show, which captures the tumultuousness of the pandemic. And they also discussed the Art Knot's 25-year quest to bring change through art. The mission is only international. We only go to countries that have been in contention. Something's happened. Sites of war, ethnic, political, and social injustices. And the name comes from art plus astronauts going all over the world and art not as usual. We try to show in places that aren't necessarily sanctioned art venues like, you know, traditional museums or galleries, but we want to show in sort of the crevices of where we might have exhibitions so more people see the work. Can you give me an example of where the art knots have gone thus far? We've had exhibitions in 20 different countries on five different continents. We've had shows in Bethlehem for, gosh, maybe 17 or 18 years. We had a show travel down the Amazon River to 30 different venues over three different years. And the cultural minister of Colombia used our art exhibition to actually learn about indigenous languages in the Amazon. One of our most recent places we continue to go back to is Bosnia, Herzegovina, because of the terrible ethnic cleansing that has gone on there. And people are still trying to come to understand what has gone on. So a lot of times, you know, the art is just a catalyst for discussion. It's a catalyst for people to get together and talk about things that are going on or had gone on. And we kind of use this term social sculpture, which was coined by Joseph Beuys, a really famous German artist that said art would be the center of what we're doing, but it just extends beyond that, trying to get people to come together, have dialogue they might not necessarily have, and really just so people understand that people are listening to them. Are countries coming to you to request that you visit? How do you define the country is under strife or has had contention? So the way it started was... When George Rivera started the collective, he he knew a number of artists in Mexico City. And at that point, AIDS was raging. It's, you know, the mid-90s, and no one was really talking about AIDS. And he felt by having a show in Mexico City that brought American artists to talk about it and then do the reverse, too. We had the Mexican artists come to the U.S., there would be this sense that, gosh, we are all in this together, and how do we begin to figure it out? So that was sort of the start of it. 
What happens many, many times is people will see the exhibition and they're from all over the world and they'll say, hey, will you have a show in our country? And George is very careful to accept or not accept depending on what's been going on historically there. And also when we're going to a place that's having a conflict with another municipality or another country, we offer that show to the other country as well. Other ways we get shows, this is pretty random. George is on a plane coming back from New York one time and he's sitting next to this fellow and he notices he has an accent. And the, the fellow said, yeah, I'm from Russia. I'm from this tiny, tiny town, way, way northeast Russia near the Chinese border. And George said, well, what's going on in your town? And he said, well, we're always on pins and needles because we don't know whether China's going to come over and take over our town, honestly. That's how we feel. So George said, hey, do you want our group to come and have an art show? And we'll talk about borders and we'll talk about relationships between lines. Like, what is a border anyway? And so they started talking. Sure enough, we had the show. And the fellow was the mayor of the town. It was not a huge place. He said, you know, it takes two days to get to our town from Moscow. You still want to come? He goes, that's what art not as usual is. Of course we'll come. So the story gets even better because... Our group is heading out. They land in Newark and 9-11 happens. And they are stuck in Newark. We are like, oh my gosh, you guys, are are you coming home? George is like, no, we are not coming home. We're going to wait here until we can fly to Russia. It's even more important we go now. And George has so many incredible stories about how appreciative this town was when they got there. They had a parade of the artwork. They didn't have a gallery So they paraded the artwork around town so everybody could see it, and then they put up a show in their library. And does the artwork have a theme that shows contention? Absolutely. So when we are looking at a place to have a show, what George does, who's our lead curator, and actually anybody in the collective can curate a show. Some of our Art Not Collective members have done it. But what he does is basically he sees what's been going on and then we try to figure out what is something we can both talk about. So in Sarajevo, our first show there, the theme was peace. Very open, very interpretable on many different levels. And with 45, 50 members in our group, we get an incredible range of how people interpret that. And I think that's one of our strengths because when we put up the show, and people come to see the show, they can enter into different pieces in very different ways. And some of them are personal narratives about peace, inner peace, psychological peace. Some of our members are refugees from different areas around the world. And some of our members have been directly in the midst of different wars. So our viewers get a chance to see lots of interpretations. And also, when China first started opening up, one of our members, um, Nicole Hanchu, is Chinese. She got us a connection, and we had a show at the Central Academy of Art, which was, you know, built up by Mao. And it was the first time Americans had ever shown. And your members are artists from all over the country. Correct. The membership really it emanates from CU Boulder, where George and his colleagues who started the Art Knots invited pretty much former students, alums. And then from there, we just kept growing because people wouldn't, oh, this person would be great, that person would be great. Now we're at a point with our website, we get 
gosh, since having this show, we've probably had 30 people who've called us to see if they could become members. And we have a system of, you know, vetting people and seeing if their work and their sort of compassion for the group would fit. And is there a type of art? Can you define the kind of art that you guys show? You know, the spectrum of what all the artists do, it's quite varied from the artists who only work not only for the collective, but in their personal practice, it's all about social justice. It's all about political change. And then there's a spectrum. Like, you know, for instance, my work is not in that genre. It's much more about abstraction and trying to get people to sense things or feel things in a different way. And all of our work that goes to the shows is two-dimensional. It's all got to be flat because we've got to pack it and get it over to the country. And so it's very small scale because we actually bring it right on the plane on a travel bag that is, so it's never out of our sight. And so for me, it's been a challenge that I've really, really enjoyed because it's not the genre of work I normally do. And I think it's made me a better artist in so many different ways. And I've learned so much about these 20 countries that like I never would have learned about what was going on in Colombia all these years. And, you know, we had a show in Chile long ago about climate change, and they've got the biggest copper mine in the world. And they're not thinking about the copper mine. They're thinking about this is how we're employed. And so now we're trying to start this dialogue about climate change. And it was an enormous hit. And that show traveled. Sometimes our shows will travel for two, three, four years, and they'll just go around a country, get picked up by another country. So that's another way that, you know, we disseminate the ideas and the words. Now, for this anniversary, you're showing your art in the U.S., and some would argue there's a lot of contention Mm -hmm. always, and particularly now in the U.S. So how do you look at that? Uh, That is one of the things, you know, we've stayed very, very close to our mission of showing only internationally. And many people have said, gosh, we have so many of these problems going on in the U.S., like why don't you show in the U.S.? And we basically say we do not have enough energy and bandwidth to do both. And so our biggest hope for this show is to really engage with the public. We can show people how we run the collective, how we've stayed with our mission. And we would love somebody to start a USA branch of the Art Knots because we could go to every state in our country and have incredible shows of contentious issues. That is ceramicist Martha Russo, visiting professor at CU Boulder. She's been a member of the Art Knots since its founding in 1996. The group's 25th anniversary exhibition is at Seidel City in Boulder through November 13th. And that's Colorado Matters for today with our team of Radio Knots. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Nathan Heffel. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.
This is CPR News, 90.1 FM KCFR Denver, 1490 AM KCFC Boulder, on HD at 90.1 FM at CPR.org and on your smart.